You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Good morning, everybody. It is Randy Bolander on the Third Cup of Coffee. Glad to have you with us this week. As we dive into some teaching from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we're going to talk about the heart of a giver. Anytime you talk about giving, uh, people, some of them act like a cat that you're trying to give a bath. Like, they're just, they're not going there. And uh, stick with me, because I think you will find this interesting and helpful. There are a series of fears that stop people from being the generous person that they want to be. And those fears are rooted in logic and good sense. But they also stop you from really becoming the generous person that at your heart you really wish that you were. I'll be talking about that in just a couple of minutes. Hope everything is good in your world. It has finally gotten cooler in Kansas City after a blistering a uh, couple of days, and so it's about 55 degrees today, and the rain has fallen. It's just nice, enjoying life a lot here in middle America. Two quick things that I want to put on your radar. Number one, September 18th is a Friday night. Jason Upton is going to be at Life Mission Church in Olathe on behalf of Zoe's House Adoption Agency. It's a benefit for Zoe's House to help raise money for adoption. You can get tickets at GiveButter dot com slash Jason Upton. Givebutter.com slash Jason Upton. Going to be a great night. You know, many of us, uh, our churches have been closed. Or we've just not been able to worship as a group. And this is a great opportunity to gather. We're going to do it safely. They have a huge auditorium. We're selling a very limited number of tickets to keep it small, to allow us to do some social distancing, keep it safe, keep your masks on. But please do come out. Please do come out Friday night, September 18th, Jason Upton. Uh, go to givebutter.com slash Jason Upton and register there. Second thing is the bridge is going to be live, in person, and outdoors. September 27th, it is a Sunday in uh, luxurious, peculiar Missouri at the barn at River Bend. If you go to thebridgekc.church. You can get directions and all the details about that, doing an outdoor service. We've been primarily online because uh, we didn't have the sense to start this thing before COVID hit. So we have been uh, mostly online, have gathered twice as a, a body in real time, and that was fantastic. This is going to be as well. So join us September 27th, 10.30 a.m. Uh, beautiful drive down there. It's going to be nice, going to be outside, and it will be good. Take a moment, grab a Bible, hit pause if you need to, turn to 2 Corinthians 9. This is the teaching from last Sunday on the heart of a giver. Now, there are two traps that we can fall into when we think about giving. And I want to ask you to help yourself avoid both of these traps, okay? Like, just mentally keep out of these. These are two ditches alongside the road. One trap is the idea of thinking 
that it's always all about money. And that is all that it is about. Sometimes our hangups about money make our mind go there immediately. But giving is about way more than money. In fact, giving really isn't even about money at all. If anything, it is about time. Money itself has no value. We've got, if you have money in your wallet, okay, if you have dollars in your wallet, that's just paper, paper with ink on it. But it represents things. It represents the effort that you put in to earn it. It represents the time that you, vent, you spent to get that money. Someone took the time to do something and they got cash for that. And some earn more per hour than others, but that's how large gifts and small gifts can both matter because one's hour is just as long as the other's. And you can die with money in the bank, but when it comes to time, we all have a finite amount and we're all running out. Revelation, I'm sorry, Romans 13 tells us, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. What that means is that clock is ticking out. Obituaries don't list bank balances. They list day of birth and day of death. So this isn't about money when we talk about giving. It's actually more about time and what we value our time with and what we do with it. So one trap on one side of the road is to fall into the idea that we're only talking about money. The other side of the road that we, don't, we want to avoid just as much is the idea that this excludes money, okay? Because money is valuable in talking about giving because it's the clearest indicator of our priorities. Now, in an exercise in awkward, what we could do, we're not going to do it, don't panic, but what we could do is everyone could look on the little Zoom call, see who's next to you, and you could forward your bank login to them so they could see your check register, and it would be the most interesting discussion ever. Because everyone's check register or bank balance would be interesting to somebody else because we all spend money differently. And no matter whose you looked at, there would be something, some line item that you would go, you spent how much on that? Because giving, or I'm sorry, our, our, our money reveals our priorities. It's what Jesus was talking about when he said, where your treasures are, there is where your heart will be. He was accentuating the act that our use of money reveals what is important to us. So as we look at this passage in 2 Corinthians, we're not talking about amounts of money or amounts of time, though. We're talking about the heart of the giver. We're going to look at the entire chapter. It's actually not all that long. And I've asked uh, Daniel if he would read this for us. If you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Daniel, go ahead. All right. <clears throat> Verse 1. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people. Daniel, I think we lost you. Okay, I'm going to pick it up where Daniel left off. How's that? He'll be back shortly, I'm sure. Give me a second. You there, Daniel? Am I back? We lost you about the third verse. Sorry. Okay, sorry. It's all right. I'll, I'll start in verse three again. Okay. But I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you're not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised. 
so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Father, we say today, thanks be to you. God, we thank you for the gift of salvation, the gift of your son, the gift of every good thing that we have, God. The gift of this spiritual family. God, thank you that it's your mercy toward us. God, that it's your commitment, your covenant toward us. And Lord, I ask today, God, that as we dig into your word, Lord, that your spirit would rest upon our hearts. God, that we would be ones who are overwhelmed with gratitude at what we have received and ones who walk in, in continual awareness that all we have is yours. Mm-hmm that our lives belong to you, that our, our time, our energy, our relationships belong to you, Lord. And so we ask today, God, that you would move on our hearts, that we would be those who are most generous with the resources that we have from heaven. God, that we would be those, Lord, that are seeking ways to continually pour ourselves out, that the testimony of our lives would be that we are a drink offering poured out in love for you and in love for others. So, Father, lead us into this today through your word, by your spirit. Anoint Randy as he leads us through this passage. Father, I ask that we'd be drawn closer to you and to one another around this message today and around this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Okay, so in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. He is speaking about giving. We're going to unpack this just a little bit and, and get the idea of the fullness of what he's talking about here. Having spent most of my adult life either in church ministry or in uh, directing nonprofits, uh, most of what is talked about in the realm of giving centers around the motivation of what gets people to give. What is the psychology of people giving? And uh, nonprofit directors, uh, ministry leaders, everybody will tell you, you know, people can give either to projects or they can give to operations or they can give to crisis projects, things that we want to do. This is the, the big goal that we want to give to or operations, the salaries and the rent or crisis. We're in bad, bad trouble. People love to give to projects. They're neutral about giving to, to operations. Nobody likes to give to crisis because the question is, how did you end up in crisis? But that approach that focusing on the psychology of giving and why people give 
presupposes that everybody's got a source of money and they give whenever their heart is touched. It suggests that people have a suitcase or a drawer or a baggie somewhere with cash in and when something touches their heart, they reach into the bag and they give it. For a believer in Jesus, that is a narrow and inadequate way of thinking about giving. There's a time and a place for all of those things. We're going to do projects. We're going to have overhead. Who knows? We may even be in crisis at some point. But before we get to any of those, there are matters of the heart that are addressed in 2 Corinthians 9 that transcends projects, they transcend operations, they transcend crisis. There is a value and a gift in giving that is bigger than even just meeting the need. And so there are some conversations that need to take place that come before the appeal or even before laying out the vision. Because if vision alone drives giving, we enter into a give and a take with projects or personalities rather than the exercising of an obedient heart of a follower of Jesus. Your giving, my giving, was meant to be a spiritual exercise, not a fiscal one. It was meant to be worship, not duty. Exodus 25.1, you go all the way back into the, the early beginnings of the Old Testament, and the Lord says to Moses, speak to the people of Israel, that they may take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution from me. Even back in Exodus, God is saying, okay, we're going to take an offering. How many of you know if God shows up in the room and says, we're going to take an offering, you reach for your wallet. But even God, when he says, I'm going to take an offering, says, from every man whose heart moves him. I want a heart connect. This is a heart level exercise. This isn't just a rule. The kingdom of God moves forward by God's power, but also by the generosity of God's people. That is actually God's plan. There are other ways to fund the kingdom. Most rulers choose taxation, but God wanted a kingdom family. And cheerful givers are always better family members than angry taxpayers are. That's why this lesson is a heart lesson before it is a lesson in economics. Now, I'm not going to reread the first five verses that, that he just read, but looking at those really quickly, if you have your Bible open, little clarification here. This is a letter to the Corinthians, first and second Corinthians. Paul's writing to the church in Corinth, but he's talking to them about Achaia. Well, who is this? Is he writing about a different group of people? No, Achaia is in the southern part of Greece where the cities of Athens and Corinth are. So it would be like addressing the citizens of Johnson County and calling them Kansans. It's all true. It's just a larger area than he's specifically referring to. And when Paul is writing to those in Corinth about the ministry to the saints in verse 1, he's not talking about prayer time, okay? We think of ministry time as everybody line up on the line, we go pray for people. He's not talking about ministry in the sense of prayer. He, the better word there might be relief. He is talking about sending finances to the church in Jerusalem, financial relief. Because when this is written, it's 20 years after the crucifixion. And in Jerusalem, which is still under Roman rule, that memory of the uprising of Jesus, if you would have called it that, and then the crucifixion and all of his uh, immediate followers, was very fresh in the minds of the Romans. So the Romans kept a pretty tight lid on the church in Jerusalem, and it's ironic that the very first church that was founded continued to be in need for a long, long time, and the other churches that followed would support it, and they would call that literally ministry or relief. That's what he's talking about. 
Paul spends a lot of time talking about this. He's already, at, at the beginning of chapter 9, he's already a full chapter into talking about sending an offering to those in Jerusalem. He had just finished chapter 8, where he talks about having this very discussion with another church in Macedonia. If you look at chapter 8, just the first four verses, he said, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part of relief of the saints. So Paul's telling the Corinthians, he goes, I just had this discussion with the other church down the street. I just talked to them about offering relief. And you know what? They gave, even though they've been a, in a very, very difficult time, they gave generously. And then in chapter 9, he tells them, you know what? I bragged to the Macedonians about you because I knew it was in your heart to give. You said last year when we had contact with you, you were going to give as well. And so because you were going to give, I bragged to the Macedonians and boy, did they deliver. And then Paul goes on to describe the concern that if he comes to Corinth to visit them and he brings Macedonians with them, and if the offering that the church there in Corinth had not already been taken, it's going to be awkward. He's like, I told them that you were going to give, and they gave, and uh, we're waiting now for you to give. So in light of his kind words about the Macedonians, when he's speaking to the Corinth church, he says a couple of dicey things. He says in those early verses, he says, basically, you promised an offering, and I'm sending somebody to pick it up. He reminds him, you were ready to give last year, but for whatever reason, the check has not arrived. Anybody who's ever gathered funds knows this. They know the understanding of you go to the mailbox, not there yet. He's like, the check hasn't come. Sometimes as believers, there is a gap between our talk and our action when it comes to generosity. And it hurts those in need, but it also hurts the one that says, I want to give, but doesn't. And in reality, he just doesn't want to hurt the church in Jerusalem. He doesn't want them to suffer because of this gap between the Corinthians' professed desire to be generous and the reality they haven't done it yet. And then he goes on to gently hint that maybe they're actually reluctant to give. Verse 5, he said, So I thought it was necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance the gift you promised so that it might be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. He says, I, I sent some folks ahead to straighten this out because I didn't want to get there. I didn't want to make you feel awkward that you said you were going to do something you chose not to because I don't want this to be a tax. I want this to be something you do willingly. He never talks about amounts. He only talks about the reluctance of those who had already expressed a desire to give. I think most people are like the Corinthians in that it is their heart. They would like to be generous. Anybody you talk to and you have this crazy conversation about what would you do if you win the lottery? They also, oh, I'd want to do some good in my community. Yeah, I'd want to buy some things, but I, I, would want to, I would want to make a difference with that large amount. But we see people every day with small or moderate amounts that aren't doing what they said they would do with large amounts if they had it. Even though they would espouse generosity as a goal, they fail to do with the little that they have what they say they would do if they had much. Why do we not do with small amounts what we say we would do if we had large amounts. There's two common reasons for this gap between our heart to be generous and our actually walking it out, which sometimes we don't do very well. And both of these 
come in the form of fear. Let me give you these two fears that we have which stop us from generosity. And these are kind of in graduating intensity. And I think you'll relate to some of these because we all do. The first reason that people have a gap between their desire to be generous and actually walking it out is the fear of irresponsibility. If I give, will my gift be well stewarded? How do I know that if I give the gift, that it'll be used well? How do I know they're not taking my gift and doing something that's very different than the mission that I intended? And this is a legitimate thought. It's not about control. It's about wanting to make a difference with your gift. If they were looking to control things, they wouldn't give at all. But these are people who want to give, but they're, they're just concerned. Are there, is their money, is their time, is their effort going to be used well? How do we combat that legitimate fear that we all have as when we're giving? Is it going to what we want it to go to? Well, of course, we do our due diligence. We expect financial accountability. And we release our gifts in places into, into people that we trust. But ultimately, we have to lean into the truth that all generous believers understand that nothing done or given in the name of the Lord is ever truly wasted. Nothing, nothing ever given out of a pure heart to the Lord is ever wasted. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of God, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. What you do is not in vain. What you earn and give is not in vain when it's given to the Lord. Remember, money is time, which is effort and labor. We need to be grateful that God, historically, is the riskiest giver ever. He's the most generous, open-handed personality that has ever existed in all of history and beyond. And having been given nothing, he gives and he gives and he gives, and he does so at great risk independent of accountability or expectation. Now, his greatest gift, of course, to us is not time and it's not money. It is the commodity that we could never drum up by ourselves. It's more valuable than time. You have some time, but it's grace. If he didn't give it to you, you didn't have any. You don't start with any. You can't buy it along your lifetime. How does God give when it comes to grace? Did he ask you, now, if I give you this gift, what are you going to do with it? Did he ask you, can I see your five-year plan for grace? If I, if I extend grace to you, can you, you know, can I see your 990? Can I see? And those are all important functions when it comes to, to finances, but God gives open-handedly. And he gave freely, and his grace enabled you to walk out those five years and, or, or whatever to make something of the grace that he gave you. But he gave it to you very open-handed. The apostles connected this idea of God giving grace to our giving to one another. 1 Peter 4.10 says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. One of the primary reasons, not the primary reason, but one of them that God has given you grace is so that you could be a conduit and extend it to other people. He did it because you needed it. But he gave you more than you needed so you could pass it on. If God's grace is meted out in order that we could extend it to others without qualifiers, do you think it would be any different with God's time or God's money? The most irresponsible thing that we can do for us is to be so cautious with what God has given us 
that we do not give it all. And it's not really irresponsible to those that are in need because God's going to take care of them. It's irresponsible to ourselves because grace and gifts are only wasted when they're stationary in our lives. So we don't want to let God's gift of grace or of of time or money that he gives us to be in vain. Do our due diligence, but don't be held captive to what happens when I release this gift. Give as God gives. Proverbs 3.9 says, honor the Lord with your wealth. That fear of irresponsibility and giving, it's real, and it's rooted in a desire to be a good steward, but it can also cripple us from giving at all or reaching out or doing any good in the world. Don't hide behind the fear of what happens to a gift when you release it. Give it to God and let him steward it. So that first fear is that idea, am I going to be irresponsible here? I don't want to be irresponsible. The second fear, which is probably the more common one, which is the fear of not enough. And like the fear of irresponsibility, it feels like stewardship in our lives when we encounter that fear. What if I give and then I don't have enough for myself? Will I be able to keep the obligations that I have made if I give? Very rare is the person who can give with no fear of not enough. I can think of, in my life, honestly, one person. It's my my second son, Grayson who will give away and has repeatedly his last dollar with absolutely no fear of what's going to happen next. There are times I wish I could like put a little fear into him about this, but he just, he lives without any fear of where the rest is going to come from. Few of us live in that world. Most of us live with some fear of running out, the fear of not having enough, which you would think would lead to good stewardship, but sometimes actually leads us to making dumb decisions. 1989, we were graduating from college, and uh, we, I had a pickup truck, and for whatever reason, we needed to get a car. And so I go and I trade, and it's almost an even trade. It's like $900 difference at this car dealership. And so I had never in my life had monthly payments on anything, okay? I, I was 19, no, I was, I was 21, 21 years old, but I uh, never had monthly fa- payments and grew up on a farm family where there wasn't a sense of monthly income. You know, you get paid once a year if you get paid that year. And, and so the idea of monthly payments freaked me completely out. And so when they asked me, how long would you f- want to finance this $900? I remember asking him, how long can I finance $900? And the business manager looked at me a little quizzically and he said, three years? I was so afraid of running out that I said, okay, and I financed $900 for three. My car payment was $40. And I think, uh, you know, like three or four months into it, Kelsey and I realized this is stupid. And we went ahead and paid it off early. But that fear of running out actually led me to make a bad decision. The fear of running out is rooted kind of in two wrong ideas. It's the idea that you are fully responsible for everything that you have. And another idea that God is the God of just barely. Now, the idea that you are responsible for everything that you have, it's easy to see how we get that way. It's actually more evident in a land of abundance than it is in a land of scarcity. Because in our culture, it's not hard to imagine that we have worked for everything that we have. It's Friday night, you go home from work, you mow your yard, you pour your glass of iced tea, you go out, you stand on the deck, and you survey your quarter-acre kingdom. All this is mine. Look at this, kids. You work hard for 40 years, and you too can have all of this. You can have a quarter acre and you can have a small house and a neurotic homeowner association that tells you that you can't do whatever you want to do. You can have these things. This is what hard work gets for you. And that's true, but where did you get the ability to work? 
Like, where did that come from? Genesis 2.15, the Lord took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Your opportunity to work, if you have it, is a gift. And so while you contributed to how the money flowed, all you have is a gift from God. Opportunity is a gift. Provision is a gift. And all of that is the Lord's plan. By worrying that we might not have enough, we actually express doubt about God's character, not our own ability to reproduce the money. God is a lot of things. He is not a God of lack. If you look all through Scripture, Ephesians 3.20 says he's able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think. John 10.10 talks about how he gives life, and he gives it abundantly. Psalm 65.11 says, You crown the year with your bounty, and your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. That fear of not enough when it comes to giving is more accurately a fear that God is not as good as he tells us that he is. It's not about a money problem. It's a trust problem. And Paul goes on to write in 2 Corinthians 9 about the heart of a giver. And the heart of a giver is an important thing. It is actually possible to be a giver and do so with a heart that negates your gift. It is possible to throw your money in the plate, a large amount perhaps, and mutter to God, are you happy? William Barclay was a Scottish minister who wrote extensively commentaries on the New and Old Testament, um, lived uh, during the 1900s. And he makes note that people can give really out of multiple motivations. They can give out of duty. They can feel like in their giving, they're paying a bill. Well, this is just what we do, and we've got to do that. They can give out of self-satisfaction because it feels good to give. Oh, I contributed to a good thing and that, that felt good. People can give out of uh, motives of having prestige. Like if I give, this says something different about me. And none of these ways are entirely bad because the, the giving gets done, but the only real biblical pattern to giving is to give out of love's compulsion because this is God's way of giving. He so loved the world that he gave his son. So the heart of a giver is a very important thing. Second Corinthians continues in uh, chapter 9, verse 6. He says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not, under, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Remember that guy who throws his money in the plate and says, are you happy? What we don't know is God is asking, are you happy? Like, how are you with this gift? Are you gritting your teeth when you do this? Or is there joy in your heart to contribute and be a part of what I'm doing? No father on earth wants begrudging service from a son or a daughter. Like, you just don't want that. It's like when your child for whom you have provided everything for except oxygen from the day they were born and is allowed to breathe the oxygen in your home, has become a young adult, and you offer them the opportunity to partner with you in taking out the trash, if they do that and they look at you and say, are you happy? You would have rather you had done it yourself because you know the relationship is not good. 
you offered them an opportunity to partner with them and they chose to express frustration. They don't have a problem with giving. They got a problem with you. So when we ask God, are you happy? If I've done this, he asks, are you happy? One final practical thought out of 2 Corinthians 9 about the supply that we receive from the Lord and what we do with it. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 10. And he supplies seed to the sower and bread for food. Will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Here, Paul differentiates between seed and bread. Now, how could you not know the difference between seed and bread? Seed is grain, and bread comes in a bag, and it's sliced, and it's the best thing. That's why we call it the best thing since sliced bread, right? But as he's telling them this about, that's not how they got their bread. They made their bread every day. How did they get their flour? They ground their wheat. In other words, the source of what they would eat versus what they would sow in seed looked exactly the same. So he's telling them, you need to think about what I give you when I give it to you. Is it seed to sow or is it bread to eat? Sometimes the Lord brings you a supply. Maybe it's a gift. Maybe it's something you expected. Maybe it's something you didn't expect. And you have to ask him, is this bread to consume or is this seed to sow? What, what is the, like, what's the point behind what you have brought me here, Lord? How much of this should be sown and how much should be eaten? And it's not wrong to eat the bread. You've got to eat the bread. There is significant finances the Lord gives you for your consumption so that you can take care of your responsibilities. So it's not evil that it's bread. But sometimes we reach for what is supposed to be seed and we treat it as bread. There's a phrase in farming. Don't eat the seed. Don't eat the seed. Why? Why would you not eat the seed? It, it'll fill you up. It, it makes you strong. It's short term. It's a good thing. But if you eat the seed, come next spring, you have nothing to sow. And if you have nothing to sow in the fall, you have nothing that you will reap. Don't let your immediate needs or your passions cut into the supply that was meant to be sown to others. If you eat the seed, you can leave, live well for today, but you suffer down the road. Only the Lord can show you what you are to sow. But when he does, I implore you, don't eat it. Don't eat it. You'll suffer later. There are people who are in a lack today because they ate what they were supposed to sow into somebody else. They consumed for themselves a gift that really should have been for somebody else. Because consuming only subtracts from the supply sowing multiplies. And they would actually have more bread had they sown that seed than had they kept it for themselves. Remember, whoever sows sparingly also reaps sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. I was driving this morning thinking about all this, listening uh, to a song uh, that Jason Upton wrote uh, about two years ago. Kelsey was in England at an event uh, called David's Tent. She came back. She's like, Jason just did this song, and I think he made it up on the spot. And uh, fortunately, they had it recorded, and uh, later they released it. It's called Grow. The whole point is this garden's going to grow. And as he's singing it, I'm listening to it, the lyrics, this garden's going to grow. Father, make us ready, for all our hands have sown. We can hear the rain, 
this garden is going to grow. Lord, for all that we've put out there, Lord, make us ready to receive that. And as I, as I drove and I was praying through these thoughts and thinking about this, I thought, Lord, we are so blessed that in your heart, you're a farmer. God's a farmer. He allows us to partner with him to plant seed, and then he sends rain, and the miracle of germination happens, which to this day, nobody in science can really explain. How you can put something in the ground, and when it dies, life comes out of it, and you end up with more of what you let die than had you hoarded to yourselves. Science can document it, but the miracle of life is what it is. And God, at his heart, is a farmer. And he looks to us and he says, will you partner with me on this? Will you sow? If you sow, I'll send rain and I'll send sun. And when it's done, we'll both have more than we ever would have had, had you not sown, if you do it with the right heart. Now, the very tail end here, there are benefits to giving that we never, ever think about. We think about our walk with God in giving and obedience, and that's real. And we think about the good that will be accomplished, and that's real. But in giving to legitimate needs, there's one more thing that happens there. It's that hearts are knit together. I was so touched this morning. Daniel actually prayed into it just a little bit. That last passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 11 says, You will be enriched in every, gener- in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it's also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity that you've contributed for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. In other words, as we give and we join into projects together or to give to overhead or maybe even in a crisis once in a while, as we do that, the Lord knits our hearts together. And there's a sense of community that comes from shared giving that doesn't come any other way. Having exercised generosity, they were knit together at the heart level. Now, why does that please the Lord? Why, like, why, what is it about the Lord that he sees that? Because when he sees it, he understands as a group of people, they trusted me more than they feared what might happen. And that's what he's asking us. Do we trust him more than we fear what might happen if we don't. A lot of times we come away from these things, and I like to give you one, one two, threes in the way of, of homework. Uh, let me just encourage you, take an emotional inventory about these fears that we talked about. Do you wrestle with these? Do you wrestle with a fear of irresponsibility? And, and again, that, that feels like stewardship. And there is an element of stewardship to make sure your gift is going where you, where you intended it to go. So that's real, but are you hiding behind it? Are you hiding behind the fear of not having enough? And if I give, what, 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 what do I do? Take an emotional inventory. And then to be also begin to ask the Lord very intentionally and use this language because it, it's biblical and it, it locks it in your brain to ask the question, Lord, this that you're giving me, what of this is bread and what is it? that is seed? How much should be sown and how much should be consumed? When you get that sense from the Lord of what is seed, you can consume the bread with a clear conscience, with great joy. Like it's thank you for the bread because I sowed the seed and there'll be more bread because we sowed. 
Father, we love you. And you, we're thankful that you're a farmer. And you give us the opportunity to sow into things and to people that are important to you. And then you send the rain and you send the sun. And in ways we do not understand, there is a harvest. And we receive a bounty and they receive a bounty. So God, as we move forward as a church, I ask that you would show us, even as a body, what have you given us that is grain to consume, which is good and is godly, and what have you given us that is seed? And we pray, Lord, that we would never be guilty of eating the seed out of fear. We love you. It's good to be with you. It's good to read your scripture. It's good to open our hearts and say, God, do what you'll do. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us today. We hope to see you September 27th at The Bridge. Go to thebridgekc.church for more information. Have a great day.